This podcast discusses hate crimes and threatening situations. If this is a problem for you, please take care whilst listening. I heard two explosions. As I realized later on, there were explosions. I heard two loud bangs, basically. And I remember that my first thought was like, this is a terror attack. But I had that thought for like a split second. And the thing is like, nobody reacted from what I could see. Like there was no panic, no fear, no nothing. So since everyone stayed calm and everyone was just like wondering what that was, I dropped the thought and like, that was it. Um, And it took me hours and hours and hours to actually not only get the correct information of what had happened, but also to understand that my first and initial reaction and my first thought was actually correct. This was an attack. This is Christina, a survivor of the attack on the synagogue in Halle, Germany, 2019. In this episode, she will tell us her story. We will also listen to organizations who are fighting anti-Semitism. This is the Standing Up podcast, tackling the problem of anti-Semitism head-on. We have three university friends who want to talk about anti-Semitism and what we and you can do to fight it. I'm Maisie. I'm from England. Hi, I'm Marije and I'm from the Netherlands. And I'm Frances from Germany. We've noticed an increase in anti-Semitism on social media, in the news and politics. We want to do something about it. Because we think this isn't just a problem for Jewish people, but a problem for everyone. To understand anti-Semitism, we first need to know what it means. The most commonly used definition is the non-legally binding working definition of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, IRA for short. From now on, we're just going to refer to the non-legally binding definition as the IRA definition, because it is a handful to say the whole thing. So Maisie, can you read me the IRA's definition? Sure. Anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews, which may be expressed as hatred towards Jews. Rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed towards Jewish or non-Jewish individuals and or their property, towards Jewish community institutions and religious facilities. This definition is a bit vague, but it also includes 11 examples. We talked with Dr. Robert Williams, the chair of the Committee on Anti-Semitism and Holocaust Denial, from the IRA, and he explained some of the examples to us. It's important to note that the IRA definition has a strength that most definitions of anti-Semitism do not. It identifies the manifestations of anti-Semitism. It does not define intent or particular malice. This is beneficial from an educational perspective because it allows an educator to say, do you understand that that statement? That hypothetical statement is anti-Semitic. Then you can engage in a conversation. That's much better than pointing a finger at somebody and saying, that's anti-Semitic or you're anti-Semitic. So these use of these, anti, the, these examples of anti-Semitism can allow for a healthy conversation to change things without being accusatory. So one is the most obvious, calling for, aiding, or justifying the killing or harming of Jews in the name of a radical ideology or an extremist view of religion. So these are the forms that we are perhaps most familiar with because they're the ones that have been around, well, at least since the, uh, the advent of Christianity in the European space. The other forms are perhaps less obvious. Here's one. Denying the fact, scope, mechanisms, or intentionality of the Holocaust at the hands of National Socialist Germany and its supporters and accomplices during World War II. That is denying, and I would add, distorting the Holocaust. This is a form of anti-Semitism that's particularly pernicious because if you can deny that the Holocaust took place, is a very simple step to then accusing the Jewish diaspora or Jewish organizations or even the wider world of being engaged in a conspiracy. Conspiracy is one of the hallmark forms of anti-Semitism that can then easily lead to allegations and, and violence and hatred. Using the symbols or images associated with classic anti-Semitism is also a form of anti-Semitism itself. This can be 
claims that Jews killed Jesus or the so-called blood libel uh, forms uh, from the Middle Ages and, and onward that are being applied in the present day. So we're seeing some of this, for example, around the COVID-19 pandemic. There is a rise in anti-Semitic cartoons that have begun to appear online. And these are essentially claims that the Jewish people or the, Isra- uh, the state of Israel have invented COVID-19 in order to destroy the world. But the tropes, the images, and, and the themes actually harken back to the Middle Ages. And so those are clearly forms of anti-Semitism once you see them. There are also forms of anti-Semitism that can appear at times through certain critiques of Israel and or its policies. Now, this is not to say that criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. It is not if it's done in a way that is equivalent to criticism of any other nation's policies. But there are times when uh, it can happen through the employment of these medieval tropes, or it can just be twists in the language where it goes from criticism of a state's action to criticism of the Jewish people. And when it crosses that line, it can very, very quickly become anti-Semitic itself. So those are some of the forms I can keep going on if you'd like, but I think it's, that, that kind of captures the, the thrust of the 11 examples itself. He also mentioned a misconception people have about anti-Semitism today. For most people, anti-Semitism is something that they think they understand. And when they think they understand it, more often than not, they're thinking of forms of anti-Semitism that accompanied the Nazi rise to power and the Holocaust, or they're thinking of even older forms of anti-Semitism that ran part and parcel with, well, we'll call it anti-Jewish religious bias, although that's, that's perhaps too mild a term, from the uh, Middle Ages onward. But in fact, anti-Semitism appears in a variety of ways that we don't often think of today, Holocaust denial and distortion being one of them. I have to admit, this was one of the first things I thought of when someone mentioned anti-Semitism. How about you guys? Well, before making this podcast, I didn't think much about it. You know, other than reading about it in the news. I think, like most people, I had a general understanding of anti-Semitism, that it involved hate against Jewish people, but I had no idea of the full extent of this problem and everything it entails. I never really thought of Holocaust denial or Holocaust distortion as being a form of anti-Semitism. I think he's completely right in saying that we only see it in one light. An extreme, however increasing type of anti-Semitism is coming to the forefront of our time. Violent anti-Semitism that is inspired by other horrific events around the world now occur frequently. It can be said that anti-Semitism is not just a problem of the past, it still happens every day in Europe and America, but it is not as visible for everyone to see. These anti-Semitic incidences include harassment and verbal attacks and also violent attacks. Last year in Halle, Germany, an alt-right extremist attacked a synagogue. He failed to force the doors of the synagogue open but then killed two people on the street and injured two more. The attacker has been charged with double murder and the attempted murder of 68 people. He is accused of acting based on anti-Semitic, racist and xenophobic sentiments and is currently awaiting his trial, which will start this July. Christina Feist was in the shul, which is Yiddish for synagogue, at the time of the attack. So my name is Christina. I was born and raised in Vienna and I'm currently working on my PhD in philosophy and history. I spent two years in Berlin for my PhD and now I live in Paris. And uh, for last Yom Kippur, I joined a group of friends to go to Halle to celebrate Yom Kippur. And um, then I survived the attack on the synagogue. Can you tell us what happened on the 9th of October, 2019? I think around like in the middle of the service we were actually in the middle of reading Torah when I heard two explosions as I realized later on they were explosions I heard two loud bangs basically and I remember that my first thought was like this is a terror attack but I had that thought for like a split second 
And the thing is, like, nobody reacted from what I could see. Like, there was no panic, no fear, no nothing. So since everyone stayed calm and everyone was just, like, wondering what that was, I dropped the thought and, like, that was it. And it took me hours and hours and hours to actually not only get the correct information of what had happened, but also to understand that my first and initial reaction and my first thought was actually correct. This was an attack. Um, so I heard those two loud bangs. And then from where I was in the synagogue, um, in the very back, actually, I could see smoke outside the window. And I remember I was actually sitting behind a friend of mine who was uh, one of the people who organized the entire trip from Berlin. And I remember she had this like curious look on her face, like, you know, what was that? And I was like, well, if she's staying calm, we're okay. And then it feels like it's weird, like memory is a weird thing. So, and then what feels like a really long time, but it probably happened super fast. I don't know. It, it felt like a really long time until the cantor who was, uh, who was leading prayer actually walked over to the entrance and there's like a small screen where you can, because outside they have a security camera and on that screen, apparently I, I, I have no, I had no view of that. I couldn't see that. I just saw him walk over to the door and I heard some murmuring and some mumbling um, in Russian, which I don't speak. And then he turned around to the congregation, to us, and he was like, okay, everyone out. And I was like, what? I don't, what? And he was like, everyone out. And then before I could actually like grasp what was happening, another friend of mine was like, what's happening? And then the cantor was like, well, there is a guy in full battle gear and he's like shooting at the door. And then, you know, people slowly started, I mean, there was no actual panic. There was no, yeah, it would, there was no chaos, actually. It was very structured, which is really amazing. And I think we owe that to the very calm instructions we got from the cantor who, I don't know, he just became, I don't know, he just turned into this person who would give like, you know, tell us what to do, give instructions and so on. And then I saw like that friend of mine who had asked what's happening he all of a sudden jumped up and ran out the other side of the room. Um, the room we were having prayer in has like one entrance and then you can like go into the next room on the other side. And he just ran out and there's another door to enter the synagogue. So he just jumped up and ran back there. And I was like, what? Like, I thought maybe like I was coming in there. I couldn't see anything. But my first thought was like, I'm not going to let him do this alone. So I jumped up and I ran out and he was barricading the door. And then I helped him with that. And while we were doing that, people were actually leaving the prayer room and going upstairs. There's an upstairs with like, I think two offices and like a very small apartment where the cantor usually sleeps when he works at the synagogue um, on Shabbat and on holidays. And then like people were coming out of the prayer room and I was actually, I was actually going back in because I had left my jacket and my scarf in there. And both are super important to me because I inherited the jacket from my dad and I inherited the scarf from my grandma. Both are dead. So I was like, I'm not leaving this behind if the building burns down. So I went back inside, I got my jacket, I got my scarf. And then I basically just went back and forth between the prayer room where the cantor and I think the guy, he's like, he's not an actual security guy. He's just, he's a member of the, of the community who sort of decided to do security a few years ago, I guess. But he's like, you know, he's not armed or anything. He's, you know, the guy in charge of security. And like, I went back and forth between the prayer room and like the upstairs part. And then also the staircase. I helped a few elderly people because the local community is fairly old. I helped a few of them get upstairs and then I went back and forth getting like instructions and I just walked in and I was like, okay, what's next? What do I do? Tell me what to do. And then I went, did it and I came back for instructions. And that's kind of like, I think that's how I got through the entire time at the synagogue, to be honest, even like after the police showed up and we had the first, well, after we got like information that the police were not only there, but also that, you know, we were sort of safe, um, which also took forever. I kind of like, I was in this like weird shock motion mode where, you know, I was just focusing on like, you know, everyone else, like, you know, trying to not really make them comfortable, just like trying to figure out if anyone needed anything. Um, if everything was okay, I think that's sort of like what got me through the day. And then I was also one of the last people to leave the synagogue once we got evacuated by the police. It was a whole nother affair. They were very insensitive and um, I mean insensitive in a sense that like you know 
not only when you talk to someone who's like freshly traumatized, you need to have like a certain, you know, you got to be careful. I mean, that's ridiculous. And then they were also super insensitive when it comes to Judaism as a religion, Yom Kippur as a holiday. They had absolutely no idea what was going on. And then, so that was the, so that was mainly what I, what I witnessed. And then there are a few other people from our group who actually got like a second trauma from how the police treated them. Because the police were also, in my case, what I experienced, only borderline anti-Semitic, but apparently what other people experienced was way worse than that. So that was um, a very troubling experience. And then we got to the hospital. Those people were amazing. They were like, I really, that was like getting to the hospital that sort of like... Even when I think back at it now, it's like, it's just, it's relief. It just, it feels like home weirdly. So we got there and then we were in the cafeteria that was empty just for us. And then they got us everything we needed, like whatever it was, they got us everything. And then we actually, so the thing was like, you know, since the service was interrupted by the attack, we never finished a service because after that, we were just waiting for the police to finally evacuate us and trying to make sure everything, everyone was sort of okay. And then... When we got to the hospital, finally, and we were in the cafeteria, we actually decided to finish the service, which I think was the best idea. I don't know who, who actually sort of like started the entire thing, but that was the best thing we could have done. So in the cafeteria, we started where we sort of like left off. Um, we skipped a Torah reading for obvious reasons because there was no Torah scroll. But we like continued the service and like did the, the, the service that, you know, you usually do at the end of Yom Kippur before you break the fast. We did that there, super improvised. Not everyone had books, like prayer books to read from. It was like sort of chaotic, but it really didn't matter at all. And then I remember the doctors and nurses and everyone, like the staff at the hospital, they were like, they really loved it. First of all, I think because of our energy, because we were all like singing super loud and we were super happy. Some of us were jumping. We were just basically celebrating that we were alive. And then... Some of the staff from the hospital was also super curious because they had never seen a Yom Kippur service and they were like, oh, we don't understand what's happening. Please tell us. And like, you know, can we film this? And we were like, yeah, like whatever, do, do what you have to do. And then we actually broke the fast at the hospital because we had brought food initially and we had taken that from the synagogue to the hospital. So we broke the fast at the hospital with the food we had with us, which was kosher, of course. And then one of the, I think it was actually the head of the, of the hospital who was there that night. And uh, he actually uh, invited us, um, he offered to invite us for beer. So, and that's one of my, that, that's, that's one of the best memories I have of that hospital. Christina then told us that despite everything, she didn't break Yom Kippur. She felt that it was important to keep practicing, even with the attack that happened. On Yom Kippur, from sundown on the eve of the holiday, until the following nightfall, Jews obtain among other things, from carrying and using electronics in the public domain. So after sundown, she phoned her mom and messaged some friends to let them know that she was okay. And later that night she went to see some friends that had been in the synagogue with her, as she couldn't sleep. Christina's story is a terrifying example of what can happen if anti-Semitism goes unchecked. Prior to the attack, the perpetrator posted an anti-Semitic manifesto online made up of three documents in which he called for Jews to be killed. He live-streamed the entire attack, showing off his weapons and citing extreme hate speech towards Jewish people. His main intention was to perpetrate a massacre. Christina still goes to the synagogue every week and every holiday. She wears a necklace that was gifted to her by her friends after the attack. It has the hero word for life on it. She told us that she wears it every day on purpose, despite knowing that it might put her in danger. But that's how she keeps her fear under control. She will not let her fear overwhelm her. When talking about the attack, Christina shares her thoughts about the phenomenon of politicians saying never again after an anti-Semitic attack or hate crime occurs. Christina, you mentioned the phrase, never again. Do you think it gets in the way of real change? Do you think it's a phrase to use to cover up real policies 
that could actually help to fight anti-Semitism. Yeah, I think that is a very, very adequate and very sharp analysis. This entire never again thing, as much as I value it in a sense that like every, and I mean that every single time um, something happens, at least you can still see that there is people out there who will, you know, who don't tolerate it in a sense. Um, so you see those demonstrations and protests and whatever, and you see people be like showing their solidarity and so on. So that's the good part about it. The bad part is that that's all there is. And I think the, let's say, dynamics behind it is like, it doesn't really matter if it's like, you know, some regular person or some, I don't know, powerful politician. It's like there is an outcry by everyone going like, oh, no, this can't be happening, especially not in Germany and not in the year 2019 or 2020. Never again will we have this. We have learned from our history and so on. And that is like, you know, there is this public outcry. Everyone says that. And in my experience, everyone says that. And then, you know, they pat each other's shoulders in a very self-righteous way. And then everyone goes home and they go like, hmm, today I stood up against anti-Semitism, racism, and hate. I'm a good person. And that's where it ends. And that's, um, I mean, you can already tell by how I talk about this, that just makes me so furious. It makes me so, so furious because that is like, as you phrase it, like that is where people hide. They, they hide behind the never again. It's like, you know, that is all it takes. And that is so not all it takes. I mean, that's like, that. that's ridiculous. Never again is like, I don't even believe in that anymore because it's already happening. Like never again is already wrong in a sense to say that because I mean, apart from the attack on the synagogue in Halle, look at what happened, like not too long after in Hanau where Muslim people got shot out of racism apparently. And then way before all of that, I don't know how many friends I have who grew up in Germany and are in some way let's say, openly recognizable as Jewish. And what they grew up with, I mean, that is just, like, I don't, I'm speechless. A friend of mine who is, like, he's he's in his early 20s, um, and he's, uh, he usually hides his kippah under under a hat or whatever. Um, and then one time he forgets, and it's, like, 100 meters to synagogue, and there are, like, police officers in front of synagogue and police officers in front of the student dormitory where he lives. And within those 100 meters... A car stops on the street, a guy gets out, yells Sieg Heil, does the Hitler salute, gets back in his car, drives off. And that, I mean, that is like, how is that even possible? And then the exact same friend tells me about another thing that happened to him. And I'm like, sweetheart, could you please report this to the police? And his response is like, what for? The issue of underreporting is large. Here, Christina's friend has the same attitude as many other people who have been attacked, harassed or discriminated against in the form of a hate crime. Whilst organizations make a real effort to increase the rate of reporting, it can be seen as hopeless for groups such as the Jewish community who experience an increase in violence. An anti-Semitic incident is not always against the law, so people won't always say they need to report it. This also has to do with the difference in laws between countries. For example, in the USA, the First Amendment includes freedom of speech. So if someone is derogatory towards someone else on the street, is that freedom of speech or a hate crime? In Western Europe, most countries have strict laws to regulate the hate crimes and hate speech. However, having laws against hate speech doesn't mean that it's eradicated. In France, Germany and the Netherlands, laws are strict regarding what you can and cannot say, but there is still a trend of increased anti-Semitic attitudes and incidents. It's not easy to say if banning the hate speech helps or hinders the fight against discrimination. However, the organization that we will introduce to you later all stress that reporting hate incidents is extremely important, whether it be hate speech, hateful social media posts or physical attacks. Reporting leads to collecting data, and data can tell organizations things like who the perpetrators are, what type of incidents are taking place, and how often is violence being used. Right now, violent anti-Semitism is increasing. The FRA, which is the European Union Agency for Fundamental Rights, completed a survey in 12 European countries 
in 2019. They found that of the 16,500 Jewish individuals that they surveyed, that nearly half worried about being a victim of anti-Semitic crime, and over one-third worried about being physically attacked. Statistics show that different types of violence are used in hate crimes. This ranges from street harassment to kidnappings and murder. However, it's hard to say how common violent anti-Semitism is, or to make comparisons between countries, as even within Europe, there are different definitions about what counts as being anti-Semitic and also what a hate crime is. And on top of that, there's confusion as to whether an anti-Jewish incident should be prosecuted as a racial or religious offence. So this, alongside underreporting, can mean that anti-Semitism and hate crimes can get recorded differently by law enforcement agencies. This is a problem. Whilst we know that anti-Semitism is on the rise, it's hard to see what's under the tip of the iceberg. To understand what can be done to tackle anti-Semitism, we talked to three different organizations whose goal it is to fight this wicked problem. We interviewed the Anti-Defamation League, short ADL, Combat Anti-Semitism, short CAS, and the IRA. They let us know what they do and gave us some practical tips on what you can do to stop anti-Semitic hate. Let's allow them to introduce themselves. My name is Richard Prem. I am the Director for Regional Advocacy and International Affairs at the Anti-Defamation League in New York. So my name is uh, Sasha Reutemann Bratois. I'm the Director of the Combat Antisemitism Movement. Sure. My name is Dr. Robert Williams. I am, among other things, uh, the Chair of the Committee for Antisemitism and Holocaust Denial at the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. Now we know who we're talking to. One of the reasons for the existence of this podcast is the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe and America. But why is anti-Semitism still so common and on the rise? Let's first ask that question to Sasha from the organization CAS. <laughs> that's, a very big, that's a very big question and, and sometimes I don't know. Uh, I don't know why. Because we are normal person, we just have a different faith. There was always a kind of hatred and love relationship with the Jews. Sometimes in some countries, Jews were very well accepted, and in others, very not well accepted. And usually it's common in period of crisis when you have a war situation. So even now you can see in the COVID-19 crisis, coronavirus, you see a lot of people accusing the Jews for spreading the virus around the world, which is completely you know, ridiculous. But still you have a crisis, so you have opportunities to accuse someone. And I think that the world needs to find always someone to be responsible for the problem of the world. And Jews, as, as a people that work for what they believe in that is united also, sometimes it's easy to accuse it to be responsible for everything. And instead of looking inside the society on the problems and to fix them, a lot of time Jews are the one to be accused because it's easier for people than to look inside of the society and to fix the problem of the society. By accusing the Jews, you don't fix any problem in the society. You just find someone that you can spread hatred against it instead of stopping for a minute, look at the society, look at the problem, try to define them, try to fix them, and uh, basically at the end of the day, leave the Jews alone. And I'm, I'm saying that as a Jewish person that grew up in Belgium, a, a neighborhood country from Netherlands, I didn't did anything to anybody. But still I was accused of many things. First of all, I was accused to be a Jew. That is different things than other people. Then I was accused with my relationship with Israel. And then, then I'm like asking myself who I am as a Belgian pe person. And then people made me feel understand that I'm different. Not because I want to be different, because they made me feel different. So I think to your question, I don't have a perfect answer. I think it's a still a big question why there is so much hatred against the Jewish people until today. And I believe we'll, we'll find out the solution to better connect. I believe that on my side, we're working much more on the solutions, but it's a big question. So thank you for asking. Robert, in your opinion, why is Holocaust denial and distortion on the rise? If I had the answer to that, I'd have a, I'd have a significant prize in my hand. But the, the, there seem to be a few factors at play. One is there is a certain degree of apathy to certain subjects, including the Holocaust, that is at play. 
There are historically times, we're actually at what we could call an inflection point in our engagement with the Holocaust right now. Fortunately, there are enough organizations committed to Holocaust education that I think it will continue to be taught for another 75 years, continue to help shape our understanding. But if we don't continue to support Holocaust education and Holocaust research, it is a field of study that could rapidly fall into decline. Let's look at other major moments in European history. You still have a vibrant field of scholarship on the French Revolution, right? And that was it partially by intent. The government of France and other governments pumped resources into training new scholars, new educators to keep the subject alive. This is something that really became obvious around 1989 during the 200th anniversary. But even after, you know, 50, 75 years after that, it became a subject under its own merits. So we need to make sure that people continue to engage. The fact that they are engaging, though, only takes you so far. We also live in an environment where, well, it's not my term. Other scholars have coined this term. But an environment where denialism has become acceptable. And by this, I don't mean just Holocaust denial. I mean denial of science, denial of climate change, denial of, I mean, the very fact that we have so-called flat earthers is mind-boggling. You know, the, the, I mean, how anyone could think that we uh, no longer live on a sphere so many, so many years after, after the circumnavigation of the globe is, is mind-boggling to me. But this climate of denialism where basic facts are being called into question is certainly helping inform forms of distortion and denial that we see today. And the last aspect of this is the fact that we are living in a new media environment where we not only have a constant stream of media coming in every second, but that media has to be characterized in bite-sized chunks. So very, you know, either tweets or something even briefer than a tweet. And when you are dealing with very brief content, but in content that's coming in on such a regular basis, it loses all of its nuance. It has to go for the punch. And anything that's punchy gets attention. And, you know, this is something that... Uh, <laughs> that propagandists understood well uh, 100 years ago. And, but there's so much content that it's actually becoming, I think, somewhat more difficult for audiences to filter out what is factual from what is counterfactual or distortionist or just an outright lie. And we need greater media literacy in order to, to deal with this. Okay, thank you. So now we have a grasp as to why anti-Semitism is still a problem. But what, in your opinion is the biggest threat to Jewish people today. Sasha? You know, at the end of the day, is the, the most, the biggest one, is a physical threat. I think that if you look at France, United States, in, in Poway, in Pittsburgh, in France, you had many incidents. Physical threat when you have someone that actually do an active act of hatred by killing someone, by actively touching someone, this is the, the most important threat that should be stopped by the authorities and by everyone as soon as possible. And I can tell you from my own experience as a member of the Jewish community in Belgium, by the way, I'm not living in Belgium anymore, but I was a member. I went to visit my uh, nephews uh, a year ago in Belgium. And at the Jewish school, you had snipers on the rooftop, the Belgian army outside of the school, the Belgian army with uh, heavy guns outside to protect the community. I'm looking at that and I'm, and I don't understand what's happening in a European country, in the capital of Europe, that the physical threat of Jews is so, is so existing. I think that this is the most important, you know, at the end of the day, as human beings, we need to live in peace. You need to be able to go to your school. You need to be able to send your children to a school to not be afraid. And your children should not see a sniper on the rooftop and an army police outside outside of the school. So that's the first, the first threat of the community. Then online antisemitism, I think that today is a major threat. People are spreading hatred. And what you can see, especially in the United States, all the people that commit active act of antisemitism, most of them, you have a record of online antisemitism content that they've seen, that they've watched or they've shared. So this is why I'm doing this relationship between physical threat and online, I would say, propaganda, low optimization, or endoctrinement. So this is the two main things that we need to do. 
if we can you know stop online hred we can stop the spread of hred and improve education i think that we're not going to need physical security but for the moment we very much needed and i know that also in netherlands because i i did a visit in the jewish community of netherlands it is a big question that the community is asking and if you go in the synagogues you have cameras everywhere the doors are not open for everyone and it's very sad to see that a, a fake place like a synagogue should be so secure i think that these things should be open and we should be proud of uh, practicing our faith like every faith in the world and richard what about you well i think that it's hard for me to to end especially given that i'm representing an organization that will have i don't know if you if you know the the old joke when there's two jews in the room there are three opinions now many people at ADL are not that work for ADL are not Jewish and it's a very diverse organization. That said, there are many different opinions about what to do about it. But I think some of the things that we are highlighting is that you know there is there definitely seems to be a climate where there is less tolerance, which is more conducive to sort of stigmatizing. And we definitely believe that that social media is enables sort of the amplifying and spreading of of, of hateful messages in a way that is not seen any time before in the world. So I don't want to give an answer in terms of it's because of this or it's because of that, but I do want to highlight a few trends that we see that are amplifying the problem. And I think if there would be one that I would I would highlight, I think it would be the role of, of social media, whether it's the incident in Halle, in Christchurch or in Pittsburgh, the fact that all these perpetrators, uh, or even earlier when you had an a Muslim extremist in France uh, attacking a Jewish school. In all of these cases, they were carrying cameras and video equipment in order to broadcast. And in the case of Christchurch, Halle and, and Pittsburgh, it was live streamed. So this interaction between individuals and, and the internet, which allows them to share their worldview, to share their modus operandi, to feel that they can reach an audience with what they're doing, I think that is definitely a trend that is new and is making it, that is amplifying this kind of hate. And, and that's also where we are focusing a lot of our efforts in trying to, to get things done, trying to get tech companies to be better aware of, of what they can do to prevent uh, their platforms from being abused. So, and then on top of that, one thing that you will always see, like whether it's now during the, the COVID times or in 2008, 2009, during the financial crisis, in, especially Western societies, there's long been a tendency that whenever a crisis hits, Jews get blamed. We're seeing that right now in the United States, where the amount of conspiracy theories linking COVID-19 to some sort of Jewish plan are, are increasing. We've seen in 2008 and 2009 where, many, where there were many theories blaming Jews for, for what was going on. But I think it would be unfair to try to point to one specific reason to why we're living in a, in a climate that seems to be enabling more, more hate incidents. Uh, you know, but I, I imagine there's also people that will look at it from a, from a different angle and will say, well, now there's just more visibility of what's going on. It's always been there and actually things might, in, in many ways, we're, we're growing more together in, in, in many ways. Robert, what is, in your opinion, the biggest threat to Jewish people today? Well, fortunately, we are in a situation where it seems a number, a number of countries in Europe and here in North America recognize that rising anti-Semitism is a considerable threat. And it's a threat that needs to be met through international cooperation. It's no longer something that we can only address within our own national borders, but we need to work in concert with one another to really fight back against it. So we have a certain momentum behind us right now in order to fight back against anti-Semitism and also related forms of bias. Because again, anti-Semitism, the themes that we see in anti-Semitism are often applied to other groups and, and these things are enmeshed. So we need to harness this momentum and move forward in concert with one another and to develop new methodologies to, to deal with the anti-Semitisms that we're seeing today. So the biggest threat would be accepting that anti-Semitism is always going to be there and always on the rise and letting that momentum stall. Apathy, apathy to the plight of Jewish communities is something that is a considerable risk in certain national contexts. And frankly, the other major threat that we are seeing is the rise of certain forms of exclusivist governance and or political ideologies in a number of countries. Uh, you see this in certain parts of North America, of course, 
but you also see this in certain parts of Central and Eastern Europe, and I would also argue from time to time in some key Western European countries as well. And while these governments or ideologies may not be anti-Semitic as such, they do lead to an environment that creates a form of what academics would call othering that could allow anti-Semitism to basically gain acceptance. So we need to not be apathetic. We need to work with one another and we need to make sure that we are engaging in dialogue on an international scale so that we can point out to our friends and allies when challenges are arising that could breed an environment where anti-Semitism could become acceptable. Your organizations, so both the ADL and CAS, are dedicated to fighting anti-Semitism. But how are you doing this? What strategies and tactics are you using? One is walking on, which is uh, football games between new immigrants and Jews in a tough neighborhood and for, for uh, young people. So what's going to happen, you're going to have like Jews that never met new immigrants and new immigrants never met a Jews that will play football together. And this is something that we do from the contest is a grassroots program and they are people to people. So this is what we believe in. And we believe deeply that by bringing people together with this kind of contest and to allow the grassroots movement to work and to develop ideas, we can change the world and make it a better place. We have two centers of excellence at ADL that are, I think, very essential to the work that we do. One is the Center on Extremism. And this has been around for quite some time and it basically tracks right-wing extremism in the United States, but also abroad. And what it does, like we have experts that will be able to tell you any kind of symbolism used online or in, in graffiti or in vandalism or in pamphlets that are spread and link it to right-wing extremist group. It knows about conspiracy theories. It knows about the actual groups, you know, who are the people behind it? Where are they active? What are the kind of activities that they do? And there's uh, two parts of that. One reason why we do that is to expose this kind of hate, but we also serve as a resource for law enforcement. For example, because we don't have a, a time limit on how much time we can spend on the case, we have records of decades and decades of uh, information gathering. So sometimes law enforcement will reach out to us and tell us like, hey, we found this uh, pamphlet being put around this neighborhood and we think it's it's racist or anti-Semitic, but we don't recognize the, the symbols or language used, or we don't know who's the group behind it. And we can, we can share that with them. And uh, another thing that the center does is actually online actively investigating right-wing extremists. And in several instances in the past few years, we have actually identified people that were on the crisp or planning to actually perpetrate attacks. So there's been multiple instances where the FBI arrested someone for domestic terrorism or other extremist charges. And that the reason that they went to look into this person in the first place was because researchers from the Anti-Defamation League started to go after the kind of online content that they saw, like who's behind it. And they start looking in the profiles and then suddenly they see pictures of someone with a gun or something like that. And, and then they uh, alert law enforcement. And because we have that relationship with law enforcement where we are a real resource for them uh, it goes the other way around as well we do have an ability to raise awareness of issues that are important to us to law enforcement and actually have their their ear and that allows us to be a, a good advocate for the victims of hate crime or anti-semitism when they report those incidents to us that we actually have somebody that we can mention this to and try to push for action to be taken then the other center of excellence which is a newer one that was established a few years ago is based in silicon valley and this is called the Center on Technology and Society. And it is really aimed at making tech companies aware of the kind of hateful rhetoric and the kind of extremism and antisemitism that exists on their platforms and working with them on trying to strengthen their user guidelines and trying to prevent their platforms from being abused, especially social media companies from being abused by extremists of all kinds. And here again, because we are, we are able to be that resource for those companies and they see real value in, in having us be involved, it also means that if we want to bring constituent complaints to them that we have a, a group of people that are willing to, to listen to us. So I don't think that captures everything that we do, but I think to sum it up, advocacy on the federal and the state level, incident response, incidents of anti-Semitism, hate crimes, working to expose and fight extremism and trying to prevent tech companies from being abused by these extremists, I think are some of the, the core mandates of what we do these days. All of the organizations also agreed that education was of great importance in tackling anti-Semitism. 
The IRA focuses mostly on Holocaust education. So, Robert, can you please explain why that is so important? Sure. Within the Holocaust, the subject of the Holocaust itself, you have a lot of facets of the human experience. The whole spectrum of, of humanity can be found as you dive into this into that particular subject. Clearly, you have the very worst of humanity. At times, you also have the very best in the form of persons who resisted, persons who engaged in rescue and the like. And then you have everything in between. So on the simplest level, understanding the Holocaust can help us understand our humanity and our roles and responsibilities in healthy liberal democratic states in order to push back against particular forms of hatred or totalitarian political practice. It's also important to understand, though, that learning about the Holocaust, and when I talk about Holocaust education or learning about the Holocaust, I don't mean just at the secondary school level. I actually mean learning over the course of one's lifetime. When you learn about the Holocaust, you also learn to understand how the Holocaust was a civilizational break, at least within what I'll call the Atlantic world, so North America and Europe, but a civilizational break that was similar to the Revolution of 1789, if you will. It's something upon which the foundations of our common identity have been shaped and formed. All of the institutions that we uh, see ourselves in in the international community, so all the conventions of the United Nations, for example, those were all framed in the shadow of the Holocaust. All the tragedy, all the mass displacement, all the mass death led to the common agreement that we can't allow this to happen again, and it created a new international order. It's important to understand the origins of that because it has relevance to our lives today. And it's that third part, the relevance of the Holocaust to our contemporary existence, that is of critical importance. There are ways that the Holocaust has an indelible effect upon our lives in a variety of ways uh, in the present day and will continue to do so in the future. It could be something as simple as the effects of economic production in regions that were devastated by the Holocaust, something that seems to continue today, and at least in certain parts of Eastern Europe, um, but also in framing the ways that we understand how and perhaps if we should be responding to contemporary mass human rights atrocities. You can't really understand the devastation of the Holocaust if you don't understand what was destroyed and, and what happened, followed in the wake of the Holocaust, at least as it pertains to the history of Jewish life and Jewish cultural experiences in Europe and beyond. That is why it's so important to gain an understanding of Jewish history and Jewish culture before the Holocaust, whether it is at the local level or uh, on an international scale, and then to understand how the Jewish diaspora responded in the wake of the Holocaust, not just the foundation of the State of Israel in 1948, but how Jewish communities in Europe either chose to stay in certain regions or migrated to other countries, including the United States or Australia. But the Holocaust is one part, one tragic part, on the, of the continuum of Jewish history. So you need to look at the educa- education and research on the Holocaust as maybe one piece in a much larger puzzle of creating a better person. As Robert said, it is important to not just learn from books and about history, but also experience the Jewish faith and culture in real life. Christina told us that in Germany, there is an organization with a provocative name. It's called Rent a Jew. This is an organization that used informal education for five years by having a Jewish person answer questions in schools and at events to get people and students involved in Jewish culture. It is to bridge the gap between what we learn and what people are actually like. It's a great way to address the elephant in the room. Here's Christina again. There is so much lack, like there is such an enormous lack of knowledge. And for some reason, I mean, there are really, there are so many initiatives and organizations um, that try to kind of like bridge that and um, help people like, you know, give access points and different ways to learn about minorities in general. Um, When it comes to Judaism, there's an organization, it's called Rent a Jew. I don't know if you've heard about it. Rent a Jew has the... uh, it has a very provocative title, um, and that's exactly what they wanted. It's, it's an organization that was originally very small, an initiative in Berlin, and what they did was like send 
Jewish people um, to schools, high schools and schools, and just, you know, have the class meet a Jew. Because most of the people have never met a Jew, at least not consciously. And then many, many kids actually grow up with uh, prejudices they sort of like inherit from their parents and misconceptions and so on. And then like those people from that organization go to schools and they go there and they go like, hi, my name is Blah and I'm Jewish. And then they talk a little about Judaism and then they have the kids ask them questions. And that is like, that is how, how they try and bridge the, the knowledge gap. And I think it's amazing. There are many organizations doing that, but unfortunately I don't think it's enough either. The next question we're going to ask is about how the organizations feel regarding criticism towards Israel and the idea of the new anti-Semitism. However, this is a sensitive and sort of confusing topic, so let's first give it some context. Francis, can you explain what this is about? Of course. New anti-Semitism boils down to the idea of Israel as a collective Jew, and at this idea, Israel and all its political and social ideas get limited to the anti-Semitic stereotype of a Jew, but apply to a whole country. When Israel is criticized based on this understanding, it's anti-Semitic. But it's difficult to differentiate between legitimate and anti-Semitic criticism, and this problem is part of a big discussion on what is allowed and what isn't. Some say you shouldn't criticize Israel at all, because it is inherently anti-Semitic, and others say that criticism is always legitimate and that it isn't anti-Semitic at all. Thank you for that, Francis. Now, to the question. How do the organizations feel about criticism towards Israel and the idea of the new anti-Semitism? You can criticize Israel as much as you want. You can, like I can criticize the, polit the politics of Netherlands, Belgium, or United States. And that's completely fine. You can agree, you can disagree, but then there are limits sometimes that, first of all, you do a generalization of everything. Then you compare Israel with the Jews. Then you hold Jews collectively responsible for the action of the state of Israel. Then you draw a comparison between Israel and the Nazi regime. And these are the kind of things that this is the limit that you shouldn't cross because they create hatred and anti-Semitism today. So criticizing Israel, it's fine, like you can criticize any country. And I think that the fact that people are kind of mixing between the definition, which you can read is very clear. The definition doesn't speak about criticism of the policy of Israel towards the Palestinian or towards the Syrian or towards anybody in the world. It's speaking about the real, real problem in today's society of putting everything together, making the Jews responsible for everything, while Israel is a state like another state in today's reality. The problem is that a lot of time Israel has been used today instead of using the word Jews. So if you take a lot of propaganda, anti-Israeli, hardcore propaganda, you replace the word Israel to Jews, it will be the same Nazi propaganda that you have seen in the 30s, 40s, and later on in the Soviet regime. So this is a kind of the problem. So yes, criticizing Israel, you can do it. And into, in Israel, people are criticizing Israel. It's a democratic country. So you have the left, the wing, they don't agree every day. They're criticizing each other, but it doesn't make them anti-Semite. The problem is when it's crossing the border. And this is why the definition is important that it puts limits and border to criticism of Israel. So you can have a clear limit when you cross the border. And I think this is very important to have today. So uh, it, it, is, it is problematic because I think it is not always as clear. To, I think everyone will recognize anti-Semitism in terms of somebody attacking a synagogue or a Jewish person. But there's definitely, uh, and you see that in, in Europe, including in the United Kingdom, where you had a leader of the Labour Party uh, who was accused of not being, who was being accused of, of being anti-Semitic himself, but at the very least not seeing how, for example, certain behaviors or views towards Israel could cross into the line from legitimate criticism into stereotyping and stigmatization of, of, of Jewish people. So I definitely think it's, it's, it's more problematic because... It is, not as, it is not as broadly accepted uh, and it is not as clearly defined as uh, the more classical types of anti-Semitism. I think in many Western countries, 
whether it's Western Europe or the United States, there's a consensus that blaming Jews for world domination or blaming Jews for COVID-19 or blaming Jews for the financial crash or suggesting that Jews somehow murder people to, to use their blood for rituals, uh, that that is anti-Semitic and should not be tolerated. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but it's definitely a, a fringe view. But we definitely see a lot of mainstream and prominent individuals, both in Europe and the United States, occasionally crossing the line into, for example, criticizing Israeli policies to suddenly talking about Israel in a way that invokes classical anti-Semitic stereotypes and tropes. Whether it involves calling Jews Zionists and basically equating the two, making Zionist sort of a code word for Jews, where somebody says, I don't have an issue with Jews, I just hate Zionists, without defining what Zionists are, and that they can de facto and then when you sometimes ask these people what do they mean, it turns out that any kind of organization or institution that is sympathetic towards Israel, which almost every synagogue or Jewish institution is, irrespective of what their views are on the Israeli political system, those would be considered Zionists by these individuals. Then they're basically equating you know, Jews and Zionists, and then Zionism becomes a code word for basically hating Jews. But then it's not always clear. Some people will think if somebody says, I hate Zionists, that they are against certain things about Israel, they don't automatically would recognize how that can cross the line into anti-Semitism. And the same with some of the, the comments that have been made very often by opinion makers in, in, in Europe and the United States about somehow suggesting that Israel controls world affairs or that Israel has too much influence or that Israel controls the money or is only looking for money. The problem with that kind of new kind of anti-Semitism is that there are also a lot of very legitimate views to be have to have on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in which you can be critical of the Israeli government. Like, if somebody says that they disagree with the Israeli settlement policy, I would never consider that anti-Semitic. I would just, you know, think, okay, that's a very legitimate view to, to have. Um, but if somebody says the Israelis are controlling the West Bank because they want to harvest the, the organs of the people living there, then they would be getting into a anti-Semitic trope. And, and there's countless examples of those where people hide behind criticism of Israel actual anti-Semitic views. And, and that is harder to combat because it's, it's not as easy to get a consensus of the overwhelming majority of a population of why that is anti-Semitic. So... Why should people care? Why does the problem of anti-Semitism not just matter to Jewish people, but to everyone? Richard from the ADL made an important point about that. Uh, the only way that Jews can really be safe and, and protected is when all minorities are protected. So that's the, the logic why we and, and some other civil rights organizations as well believe that it's so important to, to fight for justice and equality for everyone and not just for your particular group. So how can one do that? How can you, as an individual, fight anti-Semitism and protect minorities? At the end of the day, I think that the personal responsibility of combating anti-Semitism, but not just to build a better world, is very important. And is, it can come from the state, it can come from legislation, it can come from organizations like me, but at the end of the day, it's a personal thing. It's someone that needs to sit at home and to ask the right question, to read the right information and to understand the history. And this is something that, you know, we can force by pushing for legislation, by having people working on it, but you can do it on your own. And I think that the power of today's world and with the online world, and I think that we all discover, even this interview that is done by Zoom is something new. We can all do the things by yourself and we all have a responsibility to be better people. And we just need to make sure that we don't forget that as human beings. And that's for me the most important. And then you can do a better person and we're going to all live in a better society. But yeah, it's personal, but also coming from the top to the bottom and bottom up as well. But I think what everyone can do is, is educate themselves and educate the people around you, not just against anti-Semitism, but all kinds of, of hate. I think that we take a lot of things for granted and, and I always think that this is not something that, that involves me or the people around me, but I think that many of us will learn that if you really look around in your environment, there are still a lot of stereotypes that exist that, that can be countered. I think you can advocate for governments to take, to take action, to make sure that there's education about, for example, Holocaust awareness or about what anti-Semitism is. And, and I also think it is important to, to make sure that anti-Semitic acts do not go unanswered. I think a big problem with reporting and underreporting we talked about earlier is if people believe that nothing will come of reporting incidents, they will not report it. 
So I think if something does happen, if something does occur to, to uh, lobby government uh, and policymakers and to make sure that it does not go unanswered, I think that would be that would be great. And and even if you don't want to go that far, I think you all of us can be an example in our direct environment and, and speaking up and, and being an ally against stereotypes and, and bias. And that when you're confronted with it, that you that you call it out for what it for what it is and if you do see something if you do see a, a swastika painted on a wall or you do hear people say something and there is a reporting mechanism in your country please report it because the way adl or other organizations like us can do our work is because we are able to go to policymakers or to go to partners in community or in other organizations or in law enforcement to say these are the numbers these are the trends this is what going is going on and we'll be able to hold them accountable because every year we'll keep those numbers will be able to see if progress is being made. I think the the biggest, well, a big challenge here, and maybe that goes back to your earlier question about the biggest challenge is when people stop caring. If if nine people don't care about the fact that the tenth person is being discriminated against, nothing is going to change. So care about it, be aware that this is a real problem. And uh, in the United States, we are seeing that the numbers of anti-Semitic incidents are increasing. In Europe, that has been going on for a while. So this is a, it's, it's not a problem of the past, it's a real problem and, uh, and the best thing we can do about it is to not be complacent and to not become tolerant for something that should not be tolerated. During the researching and making of this podcast, we as a group have learned so much. We started this project with the knowledge that anti-Semitic views are on the rise, but what we didn't know is that anti-Semitism is more than neo-Nazis and Tiki Torch protests. It's anti-Semitic tropes said by politicians. It's friends making jokes that have a medieval connotation. It's Holocaust denial and Twitter posts. Anti-Semitism comes in many forms and from many places. Sometimes it's intentional and sometimes it's accidental. But you can do something to stop it. The first and most important thing is to not become tolerant to it. Don't stop caring. Just because it has been existing for so long and is such a big problem is not a reason to give up. It should be an even bigger motivation to fight it. So, on a more practical note, when you see or hear anti-Semitic incidences or insults in your own environment, try and speak up to it. If you see a swastika, graffiti on a wall, or you see any other type of discrimination, Please report it to law enforcement or to non-governmental organization in your country. This way, the organizations will have relevant and recent data to show to law and policymakers. Actively educate yourself. Go to the websites of the organizations we've interviewed. The links are in the show notes. From there, read up on the many resources they provide. The ADL has an amazing piece about the history of anti-Semitism and how historical stereotypes and tropes can be seen today. They use examples of anti-Semitic suggestions from Urban Outfitters to Donald Trump. If you go to a school or university, ask what more could be done to learn about different cultures, religions and minorities and how to prevent bias, bullying and discrimination. The same can be done in your workplace. Meet your neighbours, visit a synagogue, speak to Jewish people, ask them if they can explain their religion and culture to you. If you go to university, go to a Jewish organisation and let them know that you want to learn. You'll be surprised about how many people are more than happy to talk to you. Do this for other groups too, like the LGBTQ+, and Muslim community, and other minority groups. Here's Christina again, talking about our own responsibility in fighting hate. But what I really want to add is that um, for weeks and months after the attack in Halle, I gave interviews um, all the time in German, in English, on the phone, on TV, in person. Um, and like, of course it was tiring. And like, I mean, so what happened is like, I told you, I got back to Berlin the day after the attack. And then at five o'clock, I think, yeah, five o'clock, the anniversary um, party for my scholarship fund started. And I went there 
four, no, actually, even before that, in the afternoon, I had a TV interview. And then I went to the scholarship funds party for an hour. And then I did another TV interview. And oh, yeah, and right in front of the building, the Jewish Museum, where the party was happening, I did another interview. And it was like, you know, I just I did this like over and over and over and over again, so many interviews in so many languages with so many people. And I remember even like the few days after the attack, I had people ask me, why are you doing this? This must be so exhausting for you. And I was like, yes, of course, it's exhausting. But it never even occurred to me to question why I'm doing this. Because um, I know I have a responsibility. Every single person has a responsibility in that sense. No matter where you live, you always have a responsibility. But especially if you live in Germany and if you witness something like this, if you survive an attack like that, you have like double, triple, I don't know how much more responsibility to talk about this. To talk about this, to confront people, to sort of like finally get something rolling, get like have something happening, have some actual consequences. And it's exhausting. And I mean, of course, there are limits in certain ways, but I'm not doing this because, you know, I love seeing myself on TV or whatever. I'm doing this because it never even crossed my mind not to. It is so important. And I see how important it is. And I know I'm not the only person. So, and I, and I know not only am I not the only person who sees the importance and who like does this, there are many people who like, they just, for some, for whatever reason, be a trauma or something else, they don't have it in them. But all of us, all of us, especially the people who were in the synagogue, all of us in one way or another, according to whatever we can, speak up against anti-Semitism battle um, against anti-Semitism and other forms of hate and racism, we all support and protect whatever minority um, there is, because we all have a responsibility. And I think we're all going to do this until forever, because it's always going to be necessary. I've had people ask me, like, you know, are you ever going to stop? And I was like, no, like, <laughs> I mean, this is like, at the, I'll stop when, you know, anti-semitism is not a thing anymore so i'm just gonna do this forever and i think that is um another very important thing to understand and also it also has a lot to do with the never again thing it's like you know it's not like you give like one interview you give an account of what happened to you and then you're done no you of course it's part of every interview to tell what happened that day um because you have to put it into a context and, you know, remind people and so on. But what's really important about this is like talking about the bigger picture. And that's the same with the never again. That's the same with the education. Um, it's all about the bigger picture. None, none of those uh, hate crimes and racist, racist events and anti-Semitic events are single occasions. None of those. All of those are symptoms of a deeply rooted problem. And I think we all have a responsibility to to battle that, to face that, and to confront ourselves um, with that responsibility. You only need to make a small change to fight a big problem. We want to thank the organizations and individuals involved in making this project happen. And thank you for listening to the Standing Up podcast.